0: Trek Companion. This is episode 74. I'm your host, Brian Williams. I am Adam Caesar.
1: I'm Stephen Embry.
0: And today we're just going to be discussing two episodes of Next Gen's third season, The Most Toys and Sarek. Because after we conclude those discussions, we are going to be joined by Mark Cushman, author of the new uh, book about Star Trek, the original series, These Are the Voyages. He also happens to have... uh, Co authored the story for the episode we're discussing today, Sarek. So it seemed appropriate that we uh, interview him on this particular episode of our podcast. So let's get going. <laughs>
1: The Most Toys, Season 3, Episode 22, Production Number 170. Original air date May 5th, 1990. Directed by Tim Bond, written by Sherry Goodharts, music composed by Dennis McCarthy. Guest cast include Nehemia Persoff as Toph, Jane Daly as Varia, Kalm as Miles O'Brien, and Saul Rubinek as Kivas Fajo.
2: Data's shuttlecraft explodes during a dangerous transport mission. Alarmed and shocked, the crew must proceed with their emergency mission to transport the rare hetridium to neutralize a sudden water contamination at a Federation colony. Meanwhile, Kibis Faggio, the trader who supplied the hetridium, holds Data captive on his ship, ship, adding the android to his collection of -of one-of-a-kind items. You have been brought here for my enjoyment and my appreciation. Am
1: I to infer that you intend to keep me captive?
2: Captive, captive. Oh, it's such an inappropriate description. My dear Android May I call you Data. It is my name.
0: The Most Toys. It's funny, it's another one of those that I I, I just always remembered. Um. Steve, why don't you start us off on the most toys?
1: Uh I uh I like this one overall. Um, not, not fabulous episode, but interesting. Um, yeah, I I agree with you for whatever reason. I, I, this one sticks in my mind. It's very memorable. I think the, uh, there's something fun about the notion of this guy. It's got all these, uh, artifacts from some of some that are fictitious, some of our era. So there's some familiar things in there. So it's kind of fun in that regard. And, and of course, uh, The element mystery solving kind of elements are interesting uh, in episodes to me, and you know they basically have to determine. So, what's the story? Is he dead? Is he not dead? What happened? Etc. So,
0: yeah, you know what I like about that B B story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's how it's all kind of based on um, Jordy and his faith. I think in Data. Yeah. You know, like he's he just he's tenacious. He doesn't give up. But more than anything, it has to do with his complete faith in data that makes him, you know, continually re-examine that situation. It, it, it reminded me of you know, I guess it's an episode I reference a lot because uh, uh, from DS nine called Armageddon game. Um, oh yes,
1: yes, the where, coffee thing and Keiko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where
0: Keiko is just, you know, she just has this this faith that will not go away, and she needs more, you know. Um, and in a way, that's what saves him. Um, You know, Data was probably going to get out of this situation uh, regardless, but it did, (laughs) their arrival did prevent him from doing something that I think would have maybe affected (laughs) his character negatively forever, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Yeah, so maybe it's, yeah, maybe that's what's... Sorry, folks, I got a tiny bit of a cold um <laughs> tonight. Um maybe that's a little bit of it is you know, just the fun aspects of this collector, obviously. Um you listeners to our show know that I am a collector kind of person. Um <laughs> Steve, still basically that kind of person, even if you've gotten rid of I think it's, <laughs> maybe it's like um being an alcoholic, like you can stop collecting, but a recovering <laughs> collector,
1: yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: right. Um, um, so maybe that's part of it. But you know, I think, I think the the thing about the A story that I enjoy the most. Well, I like this character of uh, of Kivis. What's his last name? Fajo. Fajo. Mm-hmm. Fajo. Yeah, there's something. God, I don't know. So I'm almost like naively dark about him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Certainly by the time you get to the end of the episode. But even before that, um, the, way, the way when he threatens to kill um, Varya just to get Data to sit down. Um, you know, and then of course, by the time he kills her, and it's so... Because he has that extra beat, right? When he's about to fire, and mm-hmm. he realizes he's got her, he could kind of do anything he wants he could have he could have put her in his the brig or something i don't know he could have captured her is the point um or uh he, he could kill her and he just decides to just kill her mm-hmm. maybe because he's been always been curious how that weapon works you know <laughs> and and these are pretty dark things and we see just like and Saul Rubinick he's a very good actor doesn't usually do tv stuff i always remember in um uh, Unforgiven. I love that movie, and he's very good in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we see just this moment of I don't know that it's regret, but almost surprise, like he kind of connects to his dark action mm-hmm. for just a brief moment, you know, but then it kind of goes away very quickly, because he's hes just a—he's an evil guy. Um, but he's, for so much of the episode, he plays it in... Um, Almost comedic way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure this is pretty common knowledge behind the scenes on this episode. But of course, it was originally a different actor in that role, David Rappaport. They actually shot with him, which I'd always heard about that. But I and I I'd seen stills because mm-hmm. they re- they released some stills before they ever made the episode, or I mean, before they finished the episode, they released stills of David Rappaport as Fajo. Um, but he only shot for a couple of days, and then he tried to kill himself, and they had to recast suddenly. But anyway, um, Rapoport's version was so much darker. I mean, it was really, really dark. Um, But Rubinek plays it in such a different way um, that it's almost scarier to me, the way he plays it.
2: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of kind of a more of a creepy eccentric type character. Yeah, because so no, so he's
0: got more of a disconnect to humanity you know like he right. doesn't yeah if if people oh. are interested for the first time ever we finally got to see Rapaport as you know in some of that footage they put it on the blu-rays so mm-hmm. it was it, <clears it's throat> pretty throat> yeah it was pretty interesting um, hmm. Caesar do you like this episode?
2: yeah I I do I do like this episode and um, like you and Brian I remember it I think there's so there's a couple reasons we all we all remember it. Of course, I mean, you know, they start the episode off by killing Data. Supposedly, I mean, you you know, the audience is kind of a little bit clued into it. I mean, uh, obviously because they knock Data out and pull them out of there, but yeah, you can feel that shock and awe in um, you know Picard and the rest of the crew on the bridge. So um, it's has got a very dramatic beginning, and then they basically just have to take off because they got to go save this planet that's supposedly under distress. Um so and then the collectible collectible thing is is very interesting um I think we can get into that more when we talk about what the episode's about but yeah I enjoyed it
1: I think that's an that's an interesting facet too that we don't see very often is that um you know, because obviously they don't kill off main characters all the time, uh, you know, so to see the reactions, you know, we've seen a few of these kinds of things where someone thinks someone's dead and they, you know, carry through that. So we've seen that kind of thing and we'll continue to see it. But I always think that's kind of interesting, you know, because you're not going to see it otherwise pretty much, you know, in a TV series. So what happens if one of them goes, you know, what, what happens?
0: Yeah, it's interesting how it, how it it forces you to kind of sum up the core of the character. You know, in a way, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, you get an extra level of examination that's that's fun and interesting. And um, the stuff that still works in this episode for me, uh, kind of emotionally, is how much I feel I'm with Data, like
1: Mm -hmm.
0: the way he's treated. um, I don't know uh, um, when Fajo throws that liquid on him, and it kind of makes his clothes, you know, evaporate. So he's going to, you know, he's going to have to change or whatever. Um, and I kind of feel myself feeling angry at Farsho and and frustrated. And it's almost like I, it's almost like I'm feeling that for Data because mm-hmm. he can't, if it was, it's kind of weird. Like I want, it's like, it's like I want him to be frustrated and pissed off, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he seems incredibly stoic, uh, which is of course what, by the time we get to the end of this episode, which is what makes it so effective, um, his it, this kind of brief you know, relationship that he has with with Varya um, is interesting. I almost would have liked another scene maybe to develop that mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have felt it a little bit more when she dies. I would have felt a little bit more – w- he would have seemed a tiny bit more justified in his – basically angered response right um but let's let's talk about that so was his decision do you know okay did he really pull the trigger i would say yes Mm -hmm. um was he was he lying to Riker when he said it must have been a malfunction well no he doesn't actually i think he says something that you could interpret it either either way it's something like Perhaps there was a transport malfunction or something, you know, Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. open enough, but basically, was he lying? Um, And then the real core here, did he fire out of anger? Or was it really a um, logical course of action to prevent this from continuing?
1: I don't know. I think I think that's the complexity and all those possibilities are what make it make it interesting. I mean, because I think in a way, you could say there was a um, there was a decision there. Um, I mean, you know, if you say above all else, you cannot you you must protect life. Okay, he obviously had to come it, this I mean you could have a lot of uh, ethical debates on this, you know different different ethical angles on this, you know because obviously if you if you take no life, absolutely nothing, that's one stance, but there was obviously something else there, even if you discount the emotion involved or if there was emotion involved for data, um, there is the threat of continued loss of life that may be out of your control with this guy doing what he does, you know, and I think that's the um that was, that may have been what it ultimately came to. Maybe there was some kind of emotional epiphany involved with data and uh, that's what caused them to take action. I mean, who knows?
2: See, I kind of feel, I don't have a problem with um, what data, you know, because I think data arrived at his conclusion based on pure logic, um, you know, Steve mentioned that before. I think maybe where they kind of messed it up is when he beamed over and there was like that little bit of, you know, like you said, Brian, you're not sure, was he lying? What's what's going on there? I think they should have just played it straightforward. I mean, why should um, Commander Riker um, be surprised that Data was firing a weapon? He was in captivity. So, I mean, why, why would that be kind of like, oh, you know, he was trying to escape. You know, we caught him right at the right time. So I think they kind of just didn't play that end of it right.
0: Um, I think if, if they had, instead of data's line that almost makes it seem like they were trying to be intentionally ambiguous.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: if he had just not had that line, if he had just looked at Riker and just made a hmm sound or something, you know, he didn't even, if he, if he'd had no line there, no response, I think that would have been,
2: it would have played a much better because yeah, I agree with you, Brian. It it been kind been more of clear. Makes, yeah. Because it kind of makes it seem like, okay, well, <laughs> obviously you see that data has, has made his decision right before he's, beamed out even though you don't see the phaser fire he's you know he even has a little oomph till the you know he's about to fire so to me clearly he's made a decision there it's just on the other end and i don't really have a problem with the decision because i think he like i said he comes to it based on on logic um i think they displayed it wrong on the other end hmm. what's this episode about um I like to scene though well, I mean part of this what part of it for me what this episode was about I enjoyed um the contrast between Faggio and um Data. You know clearly you know you see Fagio ships full of um you know it probably looks like you know my bedroom or yours Brian or, or Steve's. <laughs> you know it's full of collectibles it's <laughs> a lot a lot of junk stuff that <clears throat> a lot of it might have um emotional value t- to us but I mean probably you know admit it mo- half of it we could get rid of and be just fine yeah. So we have Fazio that. So you, you have you have <laughs> on that one end, and then there's the scene with um, in in Data's quarters when um Wesley and Jordy go in there, and the and you, and you see the contrast where as Fazio has a bunch of crap, Data just has the things that truly mean something to him. You know, a gift from the captain. Um, um, you know, a picture. You know, his medals. So it's it's very, you know there's, there's not a lot there that he keeps close to them because, you know, it's not important to him to keep a lot of stuff. So I I like the contrast between those two different approaches in life. Um, and so the part of that was what part of the episode was about for me.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think because of, um, what really tips it off as to what they were going for too, is, is that scene in his quarters as well. But I think, I think it's, it's that notion of materialism. What, um, you know, we, Obviously, kiosfagio must be uh, psychotic, essentially. I mean, you know, if you can uh, you know, I could see that so or I'm the, kill
0: some. The writers were basically saying, "All you guys that
1: buy all this Star Trek stuff are <laughs> murderers." <laughs> <laughs> <Sure. laughs> well, I think uh, most collectors won't go to those means to protect their collections, but I, uh, I think that there may be a message there about um, consumerism, maybe more. Yeah, con- consumerism and materialism, and how there's the potential for maybe poisoning the mind might be a little too far, but at least. Losing sight of what is, what are, what are the important things in life, perhaps?
0: Yeah, I mean, you really get, like I said, this sense of not connecting with humanity, not not connecting with other people, yeah, and the fact that they are these sentient creatures, and in the way that he treats data, in the way that he treats Varya, you know, yeah, yeah, good good stuff. Uh, I it, it's it's. It's a fun episode. It really is. It's, it's, it holds up in an odd way to me, That but I've always remembered it, like I said. Anyway, I think we've covered it. So let's move on to... Six Degrees for the Most Toys. Oh, Adam, you going first or second? I'll go first. David Rappaport was originally cast as Kivas Fajo. Rappaport is best known for playing one of the lead characters in what 1981 film from Terry Gilliam which also starred frequent Trek actor David Warner as the villain.
2: Um, Would that be Time Bandits? You are correct. It's Time Bandits.
0: Uh, Yeah, we didn't... Nobody came back here, folks, so... uh, (laughs) Pseudo Six Degrees. Uh, Steve. Yes. Data's shuttle pod is destroyed at the beginning of the episode. It was named after a former captain of the Enterprise. What was it called?
2: Hmm.
1: I didn't notice that, obviously. But...
0: uh, Unusual, because usually they're named after like I don't know, real famous um, scientists or something.
1: Right, right. Um, Pike. You
0: are correct. It was Pike. Cool. One to one. Moving on.
1: Sarek, season three episode twenty-three production number one seventy one original air date May 14, 1990, directed by Les Landau, story by Mark Cushman and Jake Jacobs, teleplay by Peter S. Beagle, music composed by Dennis McCarthy. Guest cast include Mark Leonard as Sarek, Joanna Miles as Perrin, William Dennis as Key Menderson, Rocco Sisto as Sakath, Colmini as Miles O'Brien, and John H. Francis as Science Division Ensign. <laughs>
2: Sarek, the renowned Vulcan ambassador, is on a mission to establish relations with the Federation and a race of beings known as the the Lagaren. Sarek's intimate arrival has brought much anticipation from the crew who long to know such a legend of the Federation. The ambassador's arrival in the Enterprise is preceded by his personal staff. They ask Picard to dispense with official ceremonies that would normally be accorded a visitor of Sarek's rank so that he may rest. Picard is disappointed but later extends a personal invitation to attend a concert to Sarek's wife, Perrin, who thanks him and says that she will extend the invitation to her husband. Your efforts to discredit me will not succeed! Sarek, a Vulcan never confused what he wanted with the truth. I will not be
1: spoken to in this manner!
3: I hear anger in your voice. It would be illogical for a Vulcan to show
0: anger! It would be illogical! Illogical! Illogical!
1: Illogical!
0: Uh, so, uh, lots of things that we will forever remember from this episode. How about Beverly slapping Wes?
2: All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did kind of like it when she did. <laughs> <laughs> or, or um, Jordy and Wesley about to get into a fight. That would have been an interesting fight to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not
0: sure who would have won, but. <laughs> um, actually, if we're going to talk about things that don't have anything to do with the episode, oh my God, do I love watching Data speak with. Vulcans. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny. It's just so funny to me. That scene on the bridge, you know, when the, the uh, what's his name? Sekath? Sekath? Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, and he's like, tell me about the captain's background in diplomacy. Would he be able to take over the negotiations? And Data says, why do you foresee such a... It's just so, it's so, like, <laughs> bouncy, but I, I love it. I love it. I want him to, I just want to watch Data talk to Vulcans. <laughs> And computers all the time. <laughs>
2: well, no. It would it'd probably be like watching two computers play chess. Just for move, they it would just come to a stalemate. There'd be no winner in that. Um, mm. and those conversations or debate. They
1: often, they often, you know, uh, you can compare those styles of speaking and. uh in, in, it, in there's similar areas that's what makes it fun what the, the the interesting part of it is is they're coming from two different angles I mean you on one hand you have emotional beings who are uh, driven to uh, repress those emotions so they can be stoic etc and then you have a, a computer you know with a personality that wants to achieve emotions and so on so I don't, it's interesting
0: do you guys remember Sarek coming on this show was it a big deal yeah
1: I remember
2: yeah for sure, Sarek. Uh, well, they, Well, I mean, I think at the time, I think I had to go back and like watch the, um, the original episodes. I didn't quite remember Sarek too much. I think I remember Sarek more for his. Um. Oh my goodness, for the, the first season when he plays the Romulan captain. Oh yes. The actor for that more. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the episode. Balance I'm of sure. Terror. Okay. Yeah, I should be ashamed. But I remember Sarek more. I remember more in the movies. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously Star Trek 3 you know he plays a vital role in that one So, yeah. but yeah I remember being pretty excited about him coming onto, this sh- onto the show hmm.
0: well you know it's funny so uh, after we finish this up we're going to speak with like I said we're going to be speaking with Mark Cushman who helped come up with this who did come up with a story for this one um, but it's interesting that not only did they, they bring back Sarek but the story you know that that what it's about is it really is worth something. I mean, they they brought him back. Uh, they brought sarah on to this show in a very worthwhile way. You know, it was mm-hmm. totally worth bringing him on, and everything that we've seen before really does affect it. Because if it had just been, let me phrase it another way. If this had been some Vulcan ambassador we'd never heard of, it wouldn't have had the weight of, oh my God, after this huge career of, of making this awesome difference and being such a respected individual, he's now losing control of his emotions, which is the most humiliating, terrible thing for any Vulcan to go through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going through this senility, and it has this weight to it, specifically because of the history of the character that we are familiar with, mm-hmm. in a way that it would not without that. Um, and if you're going to bring the character on, that's what you need to do. You know, in a way... In a way, this is for me, you possi- know, in, in a way, you could almost argue to me that this this is the most successful of all the shows, all the episodes on Next Gen when they bring somebody on like this. Mm. I'm thinking about, you know, Unification 2, Relics, stuff like that, which, I mean, I love those episodes, of course. Um, and I like those, I might like those characters more than Sarek. But as far as what it brings to the character, this, you could, I think you could argue that this does more than any of the other, you know, bring an, uh, somebody back from the old shows.
1: Yeah. Well, to to me, this one absolutely does not feel like stunt casting. It doesn't feel like let's yeah, get ratings exactly. and bring this guy yeah. on. It's it, like you said, it serves the story. I mean, it, you know, there's a purpose.
2: I mean, oddly enough, I think it enhances the spot character. Um, you know we see you know, because honestly Spock's story isn't quite done in the Star Trek universe but you see the different. I mean you can see the differences on how Nimoy's played, Star- um, played Spock not just in the last couple of movies but I mean even the last couple of movies with the, the original cast he's a lot more human if you will um, I mean obviously he is half human but I mean there is a it, there is a, a growth from father to son that you can see in Spock um, and Sarek Um that that's 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 a very good growth. Um, you, you probably, however, whoever writes Spock's, you know, and he won't be, you know, dying of, of this kind of disease. He, he'll be something different.
0: So really, really great performances. Mark mm-hmm. Leonard as as Sarek and yeah. Patrick Stewart as Picard, both awesome. You know, um, actually. As I am so wont to do, I'm going to relate a quick personal story, a very, very, very (laughs) short one. Uh, You know, I remember when Mark Leonard died. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was in the mid-90s. I want to say 95, give or take a year. It was either 95 or 96, I think. Anyway, Mm -hmm. here's, here's the point of it. This was, not for me, it was in the years between, you know, after uh, high school, I went to the Army Band, and then I went to college. It was while I was in the Army Band. And the reason I remember this is because I was obviously a huge fan of Star Trek. Nobody, none of my beloved characters, none of the actors that played these, my beloved characters, had really died. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, D. Kelly is going to die in 99, Jimmy Doohan's going to die a few years after that. So, you know, Mark Leonard was the first one, and I just remember like it just had never occurred to me. Like I heard Mark Leonard had died, and it never occurred to me that, oh my God, these guys are going to start dying off. Hmm. You know, it it just never occurred to me that they would they could die. I don't. It sounds yeah. bizarre, but when it, it has to, somebody has to be first, and he was first, and it and it was and it was so um, bizarre. And I'll never forget I was where I was sitting at the moment that I heard because it was just. I, it never occurred to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I think it kind of softened the blow a few years later for when, when uh, D. Kelly died. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, Gene Roddenberry had, had passed away in 91. Yeah. Um, but it was different. I mean, he wasn't, especially when I was younger and I didn't know the behind the scenes as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, that that's the, uh, I won't, I won't belabor that anymore. But that anyway, it was a big deal when, when Mark Leonard died to me. Um, yeah, because like you said, Caesar, for example, he plays such a pivotal role in Star Trek 3. I've talked about how much I, that's my favorite movie. And I know the lines so well. Yeah. And it, it, and he just I mean, he was only like in his early 70s, which seems so young nowadays. Anyway, um, Mark Leonard's performance in this episode is freaking fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's really good. That scene uh you know there's there's two great performance scenes there 's that's that scene well actually no I mean even three so there's the scene of the Mozart music, which come on really yeah. who who thinks that's mozart it's obviously too way too romantic <laughs> uh, but and also stadium seating i don't think we ever saw that before right? <laughs> anyway. uh, the, uh the only thing ahead. I
2: could think of is um only an Android can make a Vulcan cry. <laughs> It's like a blind man teaching an android to paint or whatever. Um,
0: <laughs> you know, so you get the 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 from from um, Serik. Mark Leonard's performance in that scene is really good, really great. And then there's the the Patrick Stewart scene near the end. You know, where he is like Serik and being emotional. Uh, and then there's the, that middle scene where where Stewart Picard really confronts Serik. You know, illogical, illogical, illogical. Yeah. Uh, and and. Leonard is really good. I mean, he's really good. He is. He knows what a Vulcan is. I mean, and and he he knows how to give a Vulcan this situation of emotion, senility, um, pride being attacked. You know. I mean, it, it, there's so much to it in just a few lines, and he's he's just he's just really, really, really good. It's it's. I think this episode is universally appreciated and 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 praised. But I think it's I think it's underrated in a lot of ways, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That the by the way that that scene with Stuart when he kind of when he is you know having his big emotional breakdown near the end. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever have the chance, if you're really interested, you should read some of the interviews with Ira Bear about what they went through to get the producers to let them have him say the word the name Spock. That yeah, yeah I've heard <laughs> this. Th- yeah, it's nuts because they were so against. Referencing the original in, so, in every way, you know, they fought for weeks and weeks and weeks to get him to just say that one word. He doesn't even talk about him. he doesn't right. you know, but come on, it's, it's so obvious that it's necessary. Yes. Um, that's one of the things that was nailed so effectively, I think in in the Abrams movies was seeing, you know that Sarek did feel love for both his wife and his son. Um and in this show it took this nutty, crazy mind meld and showing Stuart being Sarek Um it looked like he's on a an acid trip for two hours and he all he gets to say is Spock. Um but anyway, it's a, I think it's, it's a wonderfully well done, well put together episode. And it's just I I, I definitely I really enjoy it. The bar brawl in Tenford totally every time it makes me feel like I'm watching original series. I don't know, triple um, <laughs> triples or something.
1: <laughs>
0: it's well, just like it silly music it. to kick in in a that. <laughs> Do it, did it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got to be more meaningful with O'Brien in the middle of it too. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we did, did. we get to see O'Brien get beat up? Is he was he beat up in this one. Oh, we Anybody see. Play? We see Riker
0: get hit. That was kind of yeah. funny.
2: Yeah, he gets clocked. He, yeah, he really. I does. would say you know you kind of expect. I kind of expected to see him with a bloody lip or
0: something. Do <laughs> mm. so you guys like this one as much as I'm? I'm stammering on about. Oh yeah.
2: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: definitely. I think yeah. I like it. If anything, it's even more so than in the past. I think for whatever reason. Yeah. Well,
0: when we talk about could the third season be the best season of the show, this episode is one of those that that helps you. Uh, yeah. That you know.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's one of the nice things about, since we've got into the third season, you know, obviously with the first two seasons, you know, we'd have like two or three in a row where we we were like, and then we'd have a good one. Well, here it's kind of the reverse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like two or three, like, oh my God, that was a great episode. And then maybe, so it's, it's been a really not surprise, not surprise, but it's been a nice change of pace um, going into the third season.
0: Well, what's it about?
2: (sighs) Well, obviously you can kind of look at it as a, is it, is it, what does it do to you to repress? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you have, you have this Vulcan way of life where they, their emotions are so intense that they, they have to do this, this form of a, a you know, repression to, to control themselves. So, um, I think it's an interesting look at it at you know how each and every one of us what we repress what we don't repress and, and how do we deal with things and what are the you know those you know when you repress something there's normally going to be a cost for that whether it's a good cost or a bad cost is is yet to be seen so I think it kind of asks some questions about that how how we deal with our emotions and feelings and and look at life
1: yeah, and I, I, for me, it's 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 kind of complex because I mean, you have a there are a lot of things a lot of things going on. I mean, obviously, there's the notion of aging and senility and dealing with this, you know, especially if you're if you're proud of keeping it together, and all of a sudden you can't keep it together. The lack of control, that loss of control, yeah. and how and how it just tears tears people up that that value that. But there are also issues, as you said, the um, with. The cost of repressing emotions or how do you deal with that when you lose that control. But also for me, the notion of uh, no man being an island kind of because, I mean, ultimately it was that mind meld and he and Picard coming to get working together to essentially get them through something. So in a way, it's like that seeming the, the, the at least the illusion of control one likes to maintain in some respects but ultimately realizing that it, it's the connections you have with other people and and being able to share emotions in some way shape or form with others is really what perhaps humanity is about in some respects. <sighs> Great
0: episode. Really yeah. really 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 holds up. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed it. Um and if it hadn't been and I think that it I think that it does stand alone. I mean even if you didn't know Sarek and no, him. I think it would still be effective, uh, but it definitely you know adds a great deal to it.
2: Well, yeah, like it's Sarah being you know we're gonna hear about like it could you know like you said it, if it was another Vulcan, could the episode have worked? Um, yes, but with Sarah, it adds a lot more weight and obvious you know emotion for Star Trek fans. So the episode's about emotion a lot of it. <laughs>
0: All right. Let's move on to six degrees for Sarek. Uh, One-to-one. Steve, this is a gimme because I already heard you say it. Mark Leonard plays Vulcan Ambassador Sarek. Uh, his first appearance <laughs> in Trek was as the Romulan commander in one of the first episodes of Star Trek. Name the episode? Mount of Terror. You know, it's funny. In all the years we've been doing this, that's the first time ever that somebody just mentioned the answer to one of my trivia questions. Yeah, especially <laughs> more Can you often? believe that's never happened? Wow. Yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> alright Two-one. Two-one. Uh, Adam, see if you can tie it up for the day. Leonard portrayed Sarek in three original series films. Which films? Obviously we've already mentioned Star Trek three, so what are the other two?
2: Um well three, four, and
0: six. You are correct. It was three, four, and six. Two, two for the day. Yay. All right, folks. Um now we so like I said, we we interviewed Mark Cushman. Author of These Are the Voyages, co-writer of the story for the episode we just discussed, Sarek. The the interview went great, but it's 45 minutes long. So we're going to put it here kind of at the tail of the episode. That's why we're only discussing two. So if you are a purist and you literally just listen to our show as a companion to the episodes and have no interest in that interview, then uh, you can just stop the podcast right now. Um,
2: why would you want to do that? (laughs) why would you want to do
0: that? Because it was actually a really good interview. Yes, you're going to hear me fawning over his book because I'm really freaking enjoying reading this book. But it really was a cool, fun interview. um, So you might want to listen to it. Um, And so if you stick around, we'll have have a little sign-off after the interview. Uh, But here it is right now. All right. So uh, we're here with Mark Cushman, author of These Are the Voyages and uh, uh, co-story, I guess you say, for Sarek. Hi, Mark.
3: Hi, how you doing?
0: Great. Um, so, first of all, thanks for joining us. I know you've been you've been making the rounds and doing the big shows and all that stuff, and, and our humble show really appreciates you taking the time to join us.
3: I like um, the humble shows. I, I get to do them from home. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: we're going to talk about your new book in a minute. I'm really loving it. Um, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I, I'm afraid if we didn't mention Sarek first, that we would end up forgetting about it. <laughs> uh,
3: That's so,
0: um, you know, I, I, I as part of our podcast here, what we do is, and we've been doing it for years now, we like each episode. We call it Trek Companion because we we kind of talk about, you know. We're trying to review the episodes in order, and we kind of intended it for people to listen yes. to as they're not literally watching the episode because our discussions uh-huh. are 10 or 15 minutes each. Okay. But as they are kind of rewatching the series, you know, which kind of reminded me when I was reading your book, I think the way I'm reading it is start to finish. But you could definitely do it as a companion.
3: Oh, you know, it, it, it's episode. meant to be a companion because when you read it, that's one of the things I tried to do. Is is you know, we've seen these episodes so many times and love them. Yeah, but we know them. So now you read this book and you find out things you didn't know, and you can watch them with a the fresh set of eyes. Hopefully, that's the plan.
0: Cool. Well, almost almost fifty years, and yeah, you're right. We've seen them so many times, but uh, it, it is really it is fun to to realize even after all the books I've read and all the times I've seen the shows, I'm still getting new information. Um, about these things from, from your book, which is what's made it so much fun.
3: Um six so, well, six years of research was for nothing if you're not getting information <laughs> and a lot of well, it I hope.
0: Well part of my research whenever I prepare for our podcast, uh, I you know, I researched all the behind the scenes for the individual episodes we're discussing.
1: Uh-huh. and today
0: one of the episodes we're discussing today is Sarek, for which you co scripted this story. And I really couldn't find too much on the the genesis of that story and you know, your role in it and all that. Could you just tell us a little bit about what your part of that yeah. was,
3: where the story came well, from? I well, I, yeah, I knew Gene from before, and, and so I called to congratulate him or sent him a note congratulating him when The uh, Next Generation premiered. And uh, towards the end of the first season, after I'd caught quite a few episodes and got the swing of it, uh, I sent him a note or made a phone call, I forget which, uh, asking if I could come in and pitch, and he said, sure. And I went in and met him at his office in Paramount, and pitched uh, several stories. And uh, uh, th- that was the last one I pitched. Because <laughs> the first ones, I said, well, this this is a story about greed. And he says, well, we don't have greed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so mankind has progressed past that emotion. I said, okay, Here, here's one about lust. Well, we don't have that anymore. And that's the way you usually do a pitch, is you pick certain emotions that you're going to tie the pitch to. Mm. And that wasn't working. So I said, do you have anything else? And I said, well, I'm curious. Uh, how old does a Vulcan live to be? And he says, well, we've never really nailed it down. We've implied that uh, maybe 250 or could be 300 or maybe even older. And I said, okay, so Sarek was uh, pushing 200 last time we saw him, and this is 100 years later, so he could conceivably still be alive. And he said, right. And I said, well, I'm wondering, Gene, what would happen to a Vulcan if he goes through simility? And that caught his attention. He was playing with some object that he was on his desk. And Gene was always a little bit like the absent-minded professor, you know, when he wasn't like ignoring you, but he'd be looking at this object he was playing with and he stopped looking at it and he looked over at me. So I knew I'd caught his attention. And he said, well, what do you think would happen? And I I said, well, you know, the the main thing with a Vulcan is they try to hide their emotion. And when we get older and we go through senility and senior years, we start losing our ability to do things that we could do when we were younger or or resist showing things that we could resist showing when we were younger. So I think that would become harder for a Vulcan. And not only that, they're telepathic or partially telepathic. So if a Vulcan is going through major, major anxiety and uh, sitting next to you, you're probably going to pick up on that. It's going to be like putting itching powder down your pants. And uh, so we might have a situation where Riker might actually challenge Picard on some of his orders or a, a fight may break out in 10 forward or things like that that we haven't been able to see because he would had the characters resist all these primitive emotions. So they're getting along great on that show, but that makes it hard to have conflict between the cast. So I came up with this device that would allow the cast members to have conflict. And he liked that. So um, was was this, was, that you pitched this, was this like... First at, the end of the, at the end of the first year. Mm. And uh, so he had me do a treatment, and he liked that. But he said, but, I, you know, I don't know if you can write for this show because we've had problems. Everybody keeps trying to write for the old show, and I need to see a sample. Uh, and uh, they just finished. Uh, he said, we bought up this year. So I said, well, you know, there's a writer's strike coming up, and they had a strike between season one and season two, which made season two have a late start. I said, well, listen, I'll just go home and write a script on spec. And he said, I can't ask you to do that. I said, no, you're not asking. No, I'm happy to do it. And uh, I'll go write one on spec, and we'll see if I can catch the voices and nail the characters. So I did that, and the strike is in full force. And I uh, went out to his house with the script and dropped it off or sent it to him, and then went out and met with him. I forget which. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, Mark, you're, you're, you really love that first show, and you're writing too much <laughs> first show. The pacing, it's its a, its a more action-adventure as the first series was, and this, this show is more science fiction and intellectual science fiction, and uh, so he said, it's not quite in the style of what we want. I said, well, that's okay. you know, Take the story and give it to somebody else. They ended up giving it to Stephen Beagle, but that didn't happen for two years because Gene kind of changed his mind about whether he wanted to involve a character from the original series in Next Generation at that point for season two. He was really trying to establish Next Generation as a show of its own. So the thing sat around. Uh, Jake Jacobs came in. He wanted to take Sarek out and make it a different Vulcan, so I handed it off to Jake Jacobs, and he wrote it, uh, who was somebody I'd done done quite a few scripts with. And uh, it sat there and sat there. And then during the third season, when Gene was not feeling well and he left the show or scaled back his involvement, uh, Mike Piller said, let's resurrect this, and let's put Sarek back in, and they had Peter Beagle do a new screenplay based on uh, what I had written before.
0: Huh. So you really had a lot of it right there from that very first pitch, though, it sounds like.
3: Well, you you, you do, and, and, you know, I mean, that if not, they're not going to buy it, you know, but a lot of times, as you're finding out and reading the book on the original series, season one, is your freelancers come in and they'll do a script but they don't always catch the characters the way you want And so quite often the staff would have to almost do a page one rewrite on them and Steve would leave a, uh, Gene would Steve uh leave a lot of these names up there on the screen like Jerry Soul who didn't mm-hmm. really write most of the coconut maneuver as you find out as you're looking at the notes in the book Gene did most of the writing on that he gave it the and character yeah because mm-hmm. uh, he knew the voices nobody else could Because for the original show, it hadn't even premiered at that point. So nobody had anything to go by except the first pilot, which didn't have most of the original cast in it. So Gene was really the only one who could rewrite those uh, episodes until the show started airing and people got familiar with it. So a lot of times the name that you see on the screen is a little deceiving Mm -hmm. as far as who did the actual work. But in this case, it wasn't because Peter Beagle uh, did a fresh script and then he was rewritten quite a bit by the staff, but uh, they kept enough of his work to where he uh, kept the teleplay credit.
0: Well, you know, one of the other things about our podcast, after we kind of discuss an episode for a while, the main crux of our podcast, the main point is we we get into what was the show really about. You know, and we tend to find that the shows that didn't really have a lot of, not much of a viewpoint or weren't trying to make a statement or weren't asking any interesting questions are the shows that maybe don't hold up as well. And, you know what I like about Serge, uh, you know, is that it's clearly about something. You know, this this concept of you know, um, you know, losing, you know, going through senility, you know, and and losing everything that you can kind of define yourself to be—the ravages of old age and all that—and um, that is certainly something that's the original series through and through. That idea of being about something, you know, asking that
3: kind well, of question. Well, Gene was the only producer I ever pitched to in all my time of working in TV uh, who asked me what the theme of the story was. Most producers, you pitch a hook and it's an action-adventure hook or a science fiction hook or whatever and they're happy with that. Well, Gene would say, okay, I like that, but what's the theme? What what are you trying to say in this mm-hmm. story? What message are you trying to get across that our viewers can think about after the episode is over? And that was very, very important to him in, in both of the series that he produced. And they've tried to keep that in there with the shows they've done since, and I think even the new movie series, they've done a good job at that. And as you read uh, the book that I did, you'll find that looking at those memos that go back and forth between Gene and his staff, as they're developing all the various scripts, theme is essential. And it continues throughout the next uh, couple seasons of TOS mm-hmm. as well. There's quite a few memos in book two where they're trying to find out what the theme is, because they would buy something without asking the writer that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Cats Paul, and then there, there, Dorothy Fontana's writing a memo to Gene Kuhn and saying, what's the theme of this anyway? I'm trying to figure it out. And they're trying to push huh. a theme in there after they bought the script instead of having it right up front. So Roddenberry was very good about asking what the theme was going to be. He wanted to know what statements you were going to make.
0: And you're saying even in the 60s, he was unique in that desire as a
3: Absolutely. Priest. Well, that's why he did Star Trek in the first place is because he had a lot of trouble on the lieutenant telling the stories he wanted to tell and a lot of trouble in a lot of the other shows. But if you you ever have a chance to see any of his uh, scripts for Half Gun Will Travel, which was a Western series, the theme is very strong in a lot of those episodes. And there's even some of them that have themes that are very similar to Star Trek episodes. So he was always very, very uh, aware of that. And it was always very important to him to want to use his position as a as a television writer and the media of TV, because you've got 20 million people watching, to try to convey something other than just entertain them for an hour, try to give them something to think about. And I think that's what we find with Star Trek, with all the Star Treks, uh, is uh, that it, that uh, after we watch it, we do think about it. And you're absolutely right. So the, the ones that we don't think that much about afterwards are the least successful episodes. They may entertain us greatly, but if you're not walking away and having learned something about yourself and society and politics and sexism and religion or whatever then uh that episode in a sense was a failure by by the Star trek standard hmm.
0: uh There's a story you tell early on in your book. I was hoping maybe you could you could uh Tell for our listeners about um, like really early. I think before you even started the book proper, you were talking about like the first time you heard about it in school and the teacher and some homework and stuff. You remember this story? Yeah. Would you, would you tell that for our listeners? <laughs> this is an example of, of the kind of uh, personal yet you know that, that I love about 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 this book. Actually, I'm just going to follow. Yeah, on the uh, that's, the whole time. that's actually can, in I my. Think, um...
3: yeah. Yeah, that's in the um, the preface of the book. Yes,
0: it's in the preface. Uh, right. As
3: I talk about how, when I was uh, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, when the show first came on, I was living on a dairy farm in, in uh, near Tillamook, Oregon, uh, and uh, we didn't get NBC on my farm where I lived. We got the other two networks, and the all three of them came. All three channels came out of Portland, and for some reason, the NBC channel didn't come in very strong. And the only time it would come in was during the summer months. We didn't have cable back then, prehistoric days. And so everyone at school in town was watching Star Trek. And I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a strange name. you know. And it was like the, the teacher would say, okay, it's Thursday night. And the teacher would say, all right, homework. And everybody would let out a big groan. And the teacher would say, okay, it was Mrs. Ruff. And I was in the fourth grade. And Mrs. Ruff would say, okay, I know, it's Star Trek night. And uh, no homework, and this big cheer would go up, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know what Star Trek is, but I'm liking it. <laughs> <laughs> no homework, <laughs> great. And but then I started asking my friends. I said, "So what? What is this? What is this Star Trek thing?" You know, I was watching Lost in Space on Wednesday nights. I could get that on CBS, but I couldn't get Star Trek. And they would start describing the episodes to me each week and tell me about them. And what was interesting were fourth graders, and I don't go into this detail in the um, in the preface, but I'll tell you. What was interesting is they, would, uh, they wouldn't they would just tell me the plot. They would be telling me what it was about. And for a fourth grader, that was so interesting for me to hear other fourth graders talking about the message they had learned from the show. And I'm thinking, this is really something special. So in the summer, it finally came in. And uh, I remember the first episode I saw was the network repeat of Devil in the Dark. And that was my first introduction mm-hmm. to Star Trek.
0: Yeah, my uh, my cohorts on this podcast, Steve and Adam. I think I'm I'm always I think they, they hate it, but I'm always telling little personal stories about you know, <laughs> what was going on in my life when a certain episode or movie came out, and it, I I, don't know, I just I think that's why that 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 story really spoke to me.
3: Um, I I uh, interviewed a, a guy named Doug Drexler. Maybe you've run into oh, yeah, him. Oh in yeah, Because yeah, he's worked on all the other shows in in the area of special effects, and he's won an Oscar, but. He was about my age as well, and and uh, so he was young when that show was first on. And he told me a fabulous story, which is in book two, because he was watching a private little war, and uh, and and right in the middle of it, uh, somebody in his neighborhood had a ham radio, and they started transmitting, and it was interrupting the show, and so he went into a panic, <laughs> and he went out on the street and he was looking for the house with the ham radio antenna and he went and knocked on the door, and some older guy opens the door, and he says, listen, listen, man, please don't do this. I'm trying to watch Star Trek. <laughs> 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 and the guy said, all right, whatever, it's Star Trek. It's okay. I'll, I'll, when okay, when's it over? And he says, well, it ends at 9.30. So please, every Friday night from 8.30 to 9.30, please don't use your hand radio. And the guy said, okay. Because if you <laughs> ever met Doug, Dr- 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 you know Doug is just has a way of, you want to just go along with it.
0: One of the things that your book did that, and, and I've read a lot of, I I haven't read as many of the fiction books, uh like like I know Steve has read a ton of those, but I love the non fiction books. I've read every one of them that I can get my hands on over the years. And I remember I remember Bob Justman and um Herb Solo's book. I read that like right when it came out. Um, one of the things that always kind of confused me that every book I've read never really explained very well to me was what exactly um Lucy Lucille Ball and Desilu had to do, like how exactly they fit in. Um, and I think your book was the first one to kind of explain it in a way that yeah. that I that made sense to somebody that's you know not living and breathing TV studio stuff all the time.
3: <laughs> right. One
0: thing it made me wonder about was if did she ever? Do you know? Did she did she ever really kind of understand what parts in it she played? It's because she lived long enough to see it become
3: pretty huge.
0: You know, I mean, long after it was yeah. out of her studio's hands,
3: but. Yeah. I no, if I can ever. answer that question, but I, I never met Lucy, and, and I've never seen her do an interview where she talked about it. I know at the time, as you you know, finding out from reading book one, is that she was uh, uh, really the person who put Star Trek on TV because her board of directors didn't want it. They said, this this show's going to bankrupt the studio, mm-hmm. and she wanted to get that show made and get it out there. So she was uh, an advocate for Star Trek, and she was really the... Uh, the person who pushed it along, her and Herb Solo who worked for her. And uh, so they made it possible. And unfortunately, as you'll find out in book two, and you know, it's, she does lose her studio, but we all know that. Paramount ended up buying it, but you may not know why. You'll find out in book two, and you'll read the great drama behind that of what she went through when she realized that she was broke and she was going to have to sell Desilu. Uh, but the board of directors were right. Star Trek ruined the studio. But uh, God bless her, you know, because without her, we wouldn't have had it. And that show has changed our lives. You know, I wrote a book um, about a show called I Spy, because that that show was the first one. It started one year before Star Trek, also on NBC, also shot at Desilu, but it wasn't owned by Desilu like Star Trek was. But it it also filmed around the world, but when they were home, they shot at uh, Desilu. And that was the first show to put a white and a black together on equal status on network TV. And showed them in 1965, sharing a hotel room somewhere and sharing a bathroom somewhere, which was really not done back then. I and mean, that's how archaic it was. And uh, in that time period, and it was the first show where a black actor won an Emmy. Bill Cosby, three years in a row as best lead in a in a show. Uh, so th- that was a very landmark show that changed the look of television and therefore changed the world. A TV show did that. Well, so, a year later, Star Trek comes along. And look what it did. I mean, first interracial cast, and not only putting them together, but putting them in outer space. The first black woman in outer space, and the first, maybe the first Asian in outer space, and so forth. Certainly the first Vulcan we ever saw. But uh, not just that. You look at all the inventions that came out of Star Trek. So even if you've never seen the show, even if you're one of those people that just is not going to watch Star Trek or not going to like it, and you know there are some of those out there, they don't. what they don't realize is how their lives have been changed because of a TV show cell phones, PCs, the Internet, DVDs, MRIs, CAT scans, automatic opening doors, all these things that came out of Star Trek that we wouldn't have today if it wasn't for that show. We might have them, but it would have taken a lot longer for them to come along because all the people who made these things, invented these things, say Star Trek was what inspired them. They were kids watching Star Trek, and they said, why not?
0: Well, it is crazy how it seems like, you know, even a a good or sometimes great show will have this aspect of it. That's great. or This aspect of it. That's great. But, you know, with star Trek, it was just like this incredible miracle where in every single area in every single discipline, you know, from people creating these props and things like, you know, gadgets from the people that just ended up being cast, the people that were, you know, you talk a lot about, um, uh, you know, just in every way, they just—they just—it was just magic, and everything kind of came together. You know, there's another a part of your book you talk a lot about. You know, um, Jeff Hunter. You know, getting replaced by Shatner, and it made me kind of think about. You know, when I watch Jeff Hunter now in, in the bits of Star Trek that he did, he—he he oddly feels like an actor coming out of the maybe late 50s or early 60s. He seems dated in a way that Shatner doesn't, and I think right. that you know that Shatner. You know, if it, my, my I guess, my 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 point is, if it had been almost anybody else, maybe the show wouldn't have survived. And you could have said that about right. so many aspects of
3: the show. And yeah. everybody connected to the show says the same thing. Even the uh, supporting players who have said they had a problem with Shatner because he felt that he was he was limiting their roles. But they'll even admit that without him, there wouldn't have been a Star Trek. Because his energy and his personality and his charisma and his drive, he was Kirk, and he brought that onto that show. And you can't imagine Star Trek working without him or Nimoy Mm -hmm. or even DeForest Kelly, but certainly Nimoy and Shatner. And then on the creative side, Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn. And as you're finding out reading the book, Bob Justman had a major hand in so many of the creative decisions, and he never really got credit for it, but he is now. And Dorothy Fontana... Uh, And imagine it without those people involved. So, you know, I, I, I say it's magic and I compare it to the Beatles because the Beatles were at the same time period and they were conquering America at the same time Star Trek was being launched. And if you had pulled John Lennon out of the Beatles or Paul McCartney out of the Beatles, they still would have been popular, but they wouldn't have been what they were. So sometimes the right people connect and it's almost a magical thing that brings these personalities together Uh, after Jeff Hunter uh, decided not to continue with the show, uh, and he used an escape clause in his contract to get out, because if the first pilot had sold, he would have been committed for five years. Mm -hmm. But it didn't. So they tried to get him to come back and do the second pilot, and he said, no, I think I'm going to go back and do movies. So they tried to get Lloyd Bridges. He said no. They tried to get Jack Lord. He wanted too much money. And imagine it with either of them. It wouldn't have been the same. No. They were so lucky to get Shatner, and the timing was perfect because Shatner had another series called For the People, and it got canceled. And the week after it got canceled, he was signed to do the second Star Trek pilot. So it was a, just a, a case of perfect timing, perfect person in the perfect place at the perfect time
0: one of the things that's, thats I know this is going to sound silly. I've been my, my again, Steve and Adam, my cohorts here can, can testify to this, that I've been telling them for weeks that, my, that one of the things I love in this book that I've never read in any other book is the nutty, insane level of detail that I imagine most people, many people would probably maybe even occasionally find not very exciting. But for me, like when you, you're telling the actor's salaries, I think that's incredible. And that's awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I, I don't know that anybody's done that. You know, like, that kind of detail, when did you know that's the kind of book you were writing? And was that always what it was? And was there any trepidation about that?
3: No. And and I I did the same thing with the I Spy book. In a way, uh, because I started the Star Trek book first. I mean, I started that, in a sense, back in 1982 when I first interviewed Roddenberry and then interviewed him again in '89. And, uh, but I didn't know how to put it all together. I was a TV writer and I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do it. And then when I got the uh, job to do the I Spy book, I used that to create the template for what the Star Trek book would be. And I wrote the book that I wanted to read that nobody else had done. I, I wrote the I Spy book because nobody had written a book on I Spy. And I used to watch that show wondering, how did they get away with this? How did they they put a white and a black together in 1965 and have the southern affiliates on NBC carry the show? How did they film around the world on a TV budget? And there wasn't a book to tell me this, so I had to take two years of my life and write one, (laughs) research (laughs) it and write it. Well, the same thing happened with Star Trek. I read The Making of Star Trek, which is a good book, Stephen Wood film, but it came out in 1968 while the show was just halfway through its run. So it doesn't even cover (laughs) the the last season or anything that... uh, occurred after that and bob justman's book with herb solo kind of gives you an idea of the uh studio heads point of view of it and bob justman's point of view is the nuts and bolts producer but it doesn't tell you what was going on in the writer's room or anything else and i wanted to know these things i would watch episodes and see an episode like uh shoreleaf which is so amazingly good And yet, Robert Sparr never came back and directed another episode, and I wanted to know why. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just so beautifully directed. Why didn't he come back? And then I would see an episode a few weeks later, like The Alternative Factor, and think, okay, this one's just not working on any level. Uh, Even though I love Star Trek and I love them all, but it's, it's one of the few of the first season that just doesn't seem to work. How come? It's the same talented crew, the same creative staff, the same cast. Why is this one not working where the other ones did? And none of these books that you speak of or Shatner's book or anybody's book would answer those questions because none of them really looked at the episodes and examined the mechanics that went into each episode, the writing, the direction, the budgets, the, the, the uh, time frame, everything that went into it, the sensor reports. And I found the only way I was going to get the answers was to just dig and dig and dig and go through all these documents and reconstruct the entire journey of each episode. So we do, what, about 15 pages per episode It takes you through the writing, the pre-production, the production, the post-production, and then the first broadcast, and I even give you the ratings so you know how many people are watching, which has never been published before. And that's the book I wanted to read, so nobody was writing it, so I had to.
0: Is it that level of detail that's necessitated it be three volumes? Did you always know it was going to be a separate volume for each season?
3: no i did not uh you know when i got into this i thought foolishly i could do it in one book uh, <laughs> when i met roddenberry and he showed me all these boxes he had of documents and there there was close to 70 and uh, i thought jesus I 70 thought I boxes did. yeah and i and wow, I thought okay. there's there's a lot of memos in making of star trek and there's a lot of memos in bob Justman's book but all these documents there's just so much hidden information in there that i was like a kid in a candy store but how do you put all that in a book? And and my I tried to and failed because as I was writing this as one book, I, I had a 1,700-page manuscript. Mm-hmm. And, well, no, they haven't made a book that could hold that many pages. So the, <laughs> spine, the spine would break, and we would throw our back out trying to pick it up. So the publisher said, you know, we're just going to have to split this into a couple volumes. And I said, well, maybe we should split it into three, one for each season. And they said, how many pages? I said 17, and they said, yeah, it's going to have to be three. And that's how it became three books. That wasn't us thinking that way, but it just became so big that there was no other way to go with it.
0: I'm curious. Well, the third volume does it stop like right when the show stops? Does it does it go into the 70s with the rebirth and syndication? Or
3: no, it stops uh, with the cancellation of the show, and there's one chapter after that that just kind of tells us what we already know. But I, mm-hmm. I try to do it in a fresh way. Of uh, that, this is not the death of Star Trek. It's the birth. We'll yes, it. It, it seems like yeah. it would be
0: hard to end on you know it's like, like you're ending on a downer the your 1700 page tome uh, uh, on the on a downer like that you know. But, uh,
3: it would be if we didn't know the future, yeah. you know, but we know the future. So uh, I mean, th- these books they're a time machine basically, and they take you back as you see. Uh, I try not to even refer to the future as as we're in the book. Mm-hmm. right there, 1964, 65, 66, and early 67 with book one. And and you even know what's playing on the radio and what the casualties were in Vietnam and what the big hit movie was of the week. And now here they are starting production on this episode. So I try to take you back. And when I would interview everybody on this, the staff and people on the sets, uh, the guest, guest stars, they'd say, well, I don't know if I can tell you anything I haven't told other people. And I said, oh, you wait, because I... <laughs> ask some questions about what color was the room, what song was on the radio that day when you were going in. I mean, I had all that information, but I wanted to try to, to trigger their memories. And it worked because they would start remembering things that they hadn't remembered before because you use these little keys to just uh, prod their memory along. And then suddenly, this is all coming out of them. And they're going, wow, I didn't realize I had remembered so much or could remember so much. So that, that was a trick that I used to try to get them to give us what we need so that now we can feel like we're sitting in Gene Roddenberry's office watching the scripts being developed. That was easy because we have all the memos. So in a sense, you're hearing him and his staff and the network having conversations about every script as they're developing it. But also when you go on the set, I give you the actual production dates, You know what day of the week it is, what's being shot that day, how late they worked. Uh, who's not feeling well that day. Uh, The Six-Day War in Israel started that day, and everybody's worried about that, listening to their radios as they're trying to work, and things of that nature. And uh, and so you feel like you're on the sidelines watching them film. And that's why we use pictures of clapboard shots and things like that to make it feel like, yeah, you're right there, watching the guy slate the shot, and now, boom, here they go.
0: With that level of detail, I'm wondering, was there anything that you wanted to put in the book that, you couldn't I mean
3: no no uh, and and I don't censor anybody uh, and I, I had no agenda other than to report You know, a lot of these other books as you've read them you know there was a clear agenda uh, like in the yeah. Herb Solo Bob Justman book well obviously her solo doesn't think much of Gene Ronneberry and that kept coming out and or say in Shatner's things, books he thinks a lot of himself Exactly. And and uh, so they're all seeing it through their eyes right. and only their eyes. Well, what I try to do is let you see it through everybody's eyes. And so quite often you'll see different points of view coming forward where somebody is saying, for instance, Leonard Nimoy is saying on The Naked Time that uh, the script had him breaking down in the hallway, the corridor. And he thought, Vulcan wouldn't do this. And he went to John Black and said, you can't do this. you got to write it another way. And John said, I'm busy. I can't I can't rewrite it. We're starting to shoot today. I'm on next week's script. So he went to Roddenberry, and Roddenberry said, No, 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 you're right. That's got to be changed. Well, then I talked to John Black, and John Black goes, That's not the way I remember it. So I allow everybody to have their point of view. So sometimes you're reading this, and Leonard will say it one way, and then John will say it another way. Well, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. And it's not that anybody's not being truthful. It's just it's our own memories. Everybody has their own memories. And they only see things through their eyes. They don't know what was going on. A lot of people uh, that I sent the book to that I interviewed called me up afterwards and said, "Um, I had no idea what was going on. Ralph Sineski, who directed a bunch of episodes, he said, I only knew what was going on when I came in to direct. Hmm. So I had no idea what was happening during the script writing process. This is so interesting. So it's fun for them to be able to go back and see all this.
0: Well it raises one question for me then if this is it's almost like it's a work of journalism, it sounds like you know um, but on on one hand, you can't say completely objective, objective i mean you do love Star Trek, that's part of the reason you wrote the book sure you know, is that is that an issue
3: no uh, because is hard to I, objective, I I
0: guess is what I'm asking.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it, it's it's just, I, I believe, and I think the reviews are backing me up. All the reviews seem to say this as well. Um, I, I think I have an ability to see things objectively, even when I'm looking at my own work. And uh, so I know what goes into making TV shows, because I've lived that life as a writer, director, even a producer. I know what's involved, and so part of my job is to help the reader understand what's involved. So when you say, why did the alternative factor not turn out very well? Well, first of all, the script's being rewritten. The, the day it's, it's, they're starting to film it, NBC comes down and says, oh, my God, you have this love scene in here between uh, Lazarus and this, uh, this uh, lieutenant in engineering because he wants to get the dilatidum crystals from her. And they said, right, you approve that. I said, but we didn't know you were going to cast it this way. You got John Drew Barrymore, who's a famous actor, who's white. And you got Janet McLaughlin, who we had never heard of, because she was from the stage. And she's black, and it's okay. So well, we can't have this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the Southern affiliates aren't going to go for this, and, and you've got to take it out. So Gene Coon is gutting that script the morning that they start filming. He's taking the whole love sequences out, which is really motivating the characters, and explains why that character is even in the script, the Janet McLaughlin character. Otherwise, you're watching it wondering, why isn't Scotty in this episode? Why is she in this episode? Well, because Lazarus couldn't have been making love to Scotty. you know. But they took that out of the script. Well, then John Drew Barrymore comes in. He's in makeup, and he's reading the script. And wait a minute. This isn't the script I agreed to do. This isn't as good as it was a few days ago. And so he walks. So now they're trying to replace him at the end of the first day of production. And we get Robert Brown, who's never seen the show, and say, we need you here at 7 in the morning. And he thinks it's a meeting, and he comes in, and Gene's walking into makeup. And he says, wait a minute, what, what are you taking in makeup for? Well, you're in the show. Bill says you can act because he and Shatner have done something, and, and you're really good, so you've got the part. And he says, I don't know if I want the part. of Star Trek? I've never even seen the show. So you know, this explains why that episode suddenly made a left turn, because it was being rushed. Well, they, they didn't have the luxury of saying, we're not going to shoot this this week. We're gonna wait and work on the script some more. They didn't have another script ready, so they had to start shooting something that morning. And this is what they had. So my background as in television allows me to convey the urgency of the situation and the pressure that everybody's under in making these shows. And now you understand why some episodes work and some don't.
2: Yeah, it it almost sounds like you have enough there to do a television series. Based on the television series, so if there's enough drama and um, things going on there. It would be an interesting, an interesting you're, show. Uh,
3: you're reading my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I—that's uh, one of the things I'm going to try to pull off. Cool. Is uh, we're going to start meeting with some people and uh, waiting for book two to come out, and then take some meetings and see if there's a chance to maybe do this as a miniseries on TV or a bunch of uh, documentaries and uh, that could be done on a box set, so you have a making of each episode in there. But I, I think it'd be great to see this with actors oh, yeah. playing the parts of Roddenberry and Justman and Black yeah. and Fontana and Shatner and Nimoy and see them making history, because let's face it, they did. It not only changed the world, this is now the most rerun series in the history of television, so it's the most popular series in the history of television. I'm not sure i I'm
2: sure you could find a few viewers for a for a series like that. <laughs> I'd watch it. I'd watch it too. Sounds very interesting. It reminds kinda of just reminded me excuse me, a that show that came on a few years ago. It was at Studio Twenty One. I know it only lasted like a year.
3: Like,
2: yeah, it was kinda of like a behind the scenes of a Saturday night live show. I I like I, I like the show but it only lasted a year, but it kinda of made me think of that. You could do a whole series on that. You haven't it sounds like you have plenty of material to keep um, an audience very entertained.
3: Well, look what we've had in the last year. We've, we had two movies on Alfred Hitchcock, one on HBO and one released to the theaters. The HBO mm-hmm. dealt with uh, the making of the birds and the, the one on in the theaters dealt with the making of Psycho and everything that went on behind trying to get those movies done. And they were fascinating. And after you watch those that, that movie, you want to turn around and rent the birds or rent Psycho and watch that again. And so I think it's a a win-win situation for everybody. I think this book will help the show, not that the show needs help, but it will make us want to watch those episodes again and see them differently. And I think seeing a show about the making of Star Trek would be fascinating. I I would watch it, even if I had nothing to do with it, I'd watch it.
0: This does kind of lead me into my last question. Um, You know, kind of thinking about, you know, modern television now. Uh, My wife and I got up at, 5 a.m. this morning so we could watch that last episode of breaking bad. Um you know and it's it's there it's probably been 10 years since there was a show that we were that was that was that you know appointment viewing kind of thing. And yeah, I I, I, I try I'm to hooked. imagine
3: I'm, I'm, I'm hooked on breaking bad, believe me. Well, it's it's a show about it's a show about a guy who makes drugs and I'm I'm completely hooked on that show. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like I just Star Trek. I just said this to uh to a friend of mine yesterday because uh, they have the final episode on. And I, I, I said, uh, this is like Star Trek in the fact that I, it's so well written and it's yeah. so well acted, and, and you just want to keep watching it.
0: That's what I was thinking of. Like, I wasn't around in the 60s, but if I had been, I think this is the level of, you know, can't wait for the next week that i uh excitement. But, but um, yeah. you know, what do you think of this idea that we're in a golden age of TV like right now? You know, what what do you think Star Trek would have to do differently to return to television?
3: I hope it does return to television. I I think, uh, you know, I like the cast of the new movies. I I like how they they treat it. Uh, They've they've rebooted it and made it fresh and new for a young audience, but it's very faithful to the original show, to where people my age can watch it and see what they're doing and get all the little winks that they do uh, in references to past episodes and so forth. And uh, I know there's some original fans who have some problems with it, but, you know, anyway, that's always going to happen. I think they've done a great job. And I don't know if those actors would be interested in coming to TV in a few years, but after they do a couple more movies, maybe they would, or maybe they'd recast it and put it back on TV. I I think uh, the first Star Trek was the best of all the Star Treks. And I'm saying that from a writer's point of view, from a TV writer's point of view, because the characters were flawed, wonderfully so. And there was great conflict between the characters. And that's what a writer is looking for. It was harder to write for Next Generation, because Next Generation, which is why I didn't really follow through. I, I did more pitches, and I, I gave them some springboards to other episodes, but I didn't really uh, pursue it as a, as a TV writer. I was working on shows and and uh, because it was a difficult show, because the cast, all the characters got along. Mm-hmm. It's much easier when the characters don't get along. Now, you look at Breaking Bad, and that's the beauty of this thing. I mean, look at the conflict between these characters, between Walt and Jesse and Hank and, and, and so forth, and then the wife, Skyler, and, and it's just wonderful. That is the, the the thing every writer wants, is characters that have such edge to them.
0: So you think for conflict- Star Trek to come back today, it would need to have a lot more conflict than... <laughs>
3: I don't it think it needs more conflict at all. I think the conflict's there. I mean, gee, the conflict is already in Spock alone. I mean, look at the, mm. the conflict just in him with himself. I mean, that, that it's, it's, it, it, the characters are beautifully drawn, <laughs> and that's why they're, they're working on the movie screen now with a whole new audience, and I think they would work on TV if Paramount or CBS, uh, well, Paramount owns the rights to new productions. Uh, so if Paramount were to bring this back to television, I think it would be a massive hit. And you can do things that they couldn't do in the first show because you're reading all the sensory reports where they would say you can't go that far, <laughs> you know. And and this this time they can do anything they want. They're not going to be restricted.
0: So when do the next books come out?
3: Uh, book two will be out around December first. And um, uh, we're trying. We're trying. We may we may be a week or two late. Hope not. I'm trying not to let it be a week or two late. Uh, they're all done, but it's a matter of getting them ready for print mm-hmm. and ready for Kindle and getting the pictures in and going through the whole process. We rushed the last one, and so now we're, we're cleaning it up for the Kindle version because there were some typos and things in there because they rushed it to get it out in time for the uh, Vegas convention. Uh, so we don't want to do that again. We want to make sure that the next one that comes out has just been gone through with a fine-tooth comb and everything is, is fine. And uh, so we're looking at uh, early December for book two and probably around April 1st for book three. And I didn't answer your question a moment ago. I'm sorry. You said, how was it to write book three and have it end without going into the future? And and I did answer in a way I said, well, we know the future. Mm -hmm. So it's not sad. It's sad in a way because we love those characters. We love Shatner in that part. We would have loved to have seen a fourth season and a fifth season, but, uh, but it's not, completely sad because we know it's not really the death of star trek
0: i bought my copy on amazon where can people find uh, your book?
3: yes it's on amazon.com you can also buy it directly through the publisher jacob brown press and um and those are the only two places right at the moment um you know, we haven't gone into the bookstores with this yet because uh, it's, it's tough dealing with bookstores these days. You know, publishing has really changed in the last few years, and that's why so many bookstores are closing down. It's, it's very difficult to be able to keep up with the supply and demand and the needs of bookstores and the pricing and mm. so forth. So Amazon's become the number one bookseller around the world.
0: Well, every review I've seen, you know, you've been on a lot of the Star Trek websites that we all frequent. Every review I've seen has been glowing, and, and um, like I said, I'm I'm about halfway through it, and I'm really, really, really enjoying it. It's the first first time in I, years I, that I've had this much fun with a nonfiction book.
3: I'm glad yeah. to hear it, and I'm delighted to see your reviews because I I, I wasn't totally sure. Uh, you mentioned it a little, little bit ago. You said, uh, by the way, this has been a very refreshing interview because you guys brought up some things nobody else has, oh, really? including, hey, what about doing a TV series, basically? Nobody said that, <laughs> even though done that all along. So that's, I, I give you credit right there, but you also said something nobody else has said uh, in, in, the, in the regard that um, the amount of detail, and would this bore some people? And believe me, there were many times when I was writing this where I thought, well, do people want to read this much detailed information? And I think the reviews are telling us that they do. And there's a lot of reviews out there that are saying you don't even have to like Star Trek to like this book because it takes you inside the making of a TV show. It's an interesting journey. I think the, the reason it works is, although it may seem like an encyclopedia of information, it's presented in a very dramatic means. It's presented like a TV movie. It's all happening right now in front of you, and there's a lot of emotion in there and a lot of conflict in there, and so it's not just trivia. It's there. It really isn't any trivia in there. You, you'll get the information, but it's presented in a in a dramatic form rather than a list of uh, of trivia things or bloopers or, or whatever. There's other books that do that and do that very well, so this one doesn't need to.
0: Yeah, this is the first one in a while that I could see myself reading more than once, because like reading it straight through and then as I'm, you know, definitely reading it as I'm following through the show. So awesome. I was interviewed uh, by
3: uh, Scott Nance on Access Hollywood uh, a couple weeks ago. they they, they broke broken into five pieces and they just put up the, the first one uh, was last week and the next one's coming up in a day or two. Uh, and he said that when we sat down to do the interview, he said, I was depressed. 'Cause he said, I've I enjoyed reading this so much and even though it's huge, it's six hundred pages, he said, When I got done with it, I wanted to keep reading and I got ready <laughs> for the next come out and and so he was kind of sulking for a couple of days and his wife said, Scott, why don't you read it again? <laughs> <laughs> he said, Yeah, and he said he's now halfway through it for the second time and and loving it. <laughs> so, yeah. He's you know, really when you have incredible. that much, you know, and and that's what I was saying to to my friend the other day about Breaking Bad. I said, you know, I'm sad it's coming to an end, but I'll bet you we can watch these episodes again from <laughs> the start and love them because they're so rich and there's so much in each one of them. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Uh, I really have enjoyed it and I really appreciate it.
3: It was I'll nice talking to you, more. Mark. All right, keep reading. More coming. <laughs>
0: All right. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, we c- certainly had fun talking to Mark. Um, yeah, I worked. He did a documentary a few years ago um, called Desperately Seeking Paul or Desperately Seeking Paul McCartney, something to that effect. Anyway, I, I worked on that on that movie. And that's uh, that's how I know Mark. That's where I met him. Um, so he's a good guy. It was It was fun. I'm glad that he was able to join us. And I'm glad that you, our listener, were able to stick around for that entire interview. See, you're special. They don't, you don't, you can get to know stuff that the other people don't know. Such <laughs> as? Well, okay, maybe they would know this. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to be finishing out Next Gen's third season. Wow. Um, so, hope to see you back for that. Uh, in the meantime. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at Trek Companion. Our Facebook listener page is facebook.com slash Companion. You can send us an email. That's trekcompanion at gmail.com. Uh, and the other thing you could do would be leave us a review on iTunes. Even if you just go click the five stars, even better if you leave a actual review. It's how people find us, and we appreciate that. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Take it easy.
2: Bye, guys. See you.